Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. There are so many things to fear in this world. Water, choking, dark forests, and an equal number of things to obsess over. Books, grief, things themselves. In the Book of Phobias and Manias, Kate Summerscale collects 99 such fixations from the fanciful hippopotamonstrosescopidalophobia, a fear of long words, to the debilitatingly real acrophobia, a fear of heights. No matter if dressed in unpronounceable Greek clothing like kumpanophobia, the fear of buttons, or bluntly named like social phobia, these obsessions account for many of today's most common anxiety disorders. Summerscale's case studies, spanning from 14th century France to the contemporary psychology lab, reveal that our obsessions' historical origins and our fervor for categorizing our differences tell us an awful lot more about modernity than our evolutionary past. Kate Summerscale joined us for the first time last year to talk about her similarly unsettling book, The Haunting of Alma Fielding. She is the former literary editor of the Daily Telegraph, and she joins us from her home in London. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Kate, and thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So why did you want to compile a book of phobias and manias and 99 of them, of all things? Um, well, I I think um, all of my books in some ways are about sort of forms of ordinary madness, kind of obsessive behaviours, fixations that are right on the edge of what is normal, abnormal, sane or insane. And phobias and manias are an instance of that in a way. They're all little pockets of madness that we carry around with us, little irrational quirks or or worse than quirks, sometimes tormenting conditions. And so I love the idea of trying to find the earliest cases, the strangest cases of each phobia and mania, and trying to um, tease out some explanations and interpretations as well. 99 is random. <laughs> there are an infinite number of phobias and manias. You can be phobic and manic about anything. Um, and a lot of them have been given names and, and, and been put in dictionaries, but but yeah, they're infinite. So I just collected the ones I thought indicated the sort of range and variety of these conditions and that had curious or intriguing stories attached to them. You group all the phobias and manias by by themes, you know, fears of inanimate objects or bodies or, or mass panics. Um, and some of them are kind of fake, you know, like the fear of long words. I don't know how real that one is. I mean, how do you know if your obsession or fear of something qualifies as a phobia or mania? Is there a line or is it too squishy? It's uh, like all these kind of conditions of diagnoses is pretty squishy. But um, there is a definition in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostical Statistical Manual, um, which is that it has to be an extreme irrational fear um, that has lasted for six months or more and that interferes with normal life. 
of all those bits, only the interferes with normal life part seems really like you can get a handle on it because the definitions of what is extreme and what is irrational are, of course, quite flexible. Um, But I think that that's quite a useful guide to what is a diagnosable specific phobia is if it gets in the way of you doing things that you would otherwise do. Um, But many more of us have fears or anxieties that we describe as phobias that don't actually qualify as a psychiatric disorder. Uh, The mania is is a a more old-fashioned term, which has now been subsumed into all sorts of things like obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, borderline personality disorders. Various manias can be attached to those conditions and also the two sort of collective manias. That's a different kind of area, which is uh, harder to translate directly into contemporary psychiatric terminology. And I've taken my guide, both with the phobias and the manias, from the history of, of these words and what they were attached to, the behaviours that they were attached to, to try to tease out the origins of kind of how we think about ourselves as emotional and psychological beings. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about there. You know, even if your phobia or your mania isn't a collective kind of mania, like tulip mania or the laughing mania or any of these documented instances of an entire community doing a thing, you're obviously influenced by the people around you, right? And the culture you're in. Maybe let's talk about an example. Um, Kayak phobia. I liked that one because it wasn't from the Greek. <laughs> and I think it, it it sort of exemplifies how different phobias are interpreted differently by different cultures. And um, is another good example of sort of like the modern smacking up against the traditional. Yeah, that was a phobia that was identified um, in Greenland among the Inuit. Greenland at the time was a, a Danish colony uh, in about 1902. And it was found that various um, Inuit men were getting sort of frozen with panic when they went out on their kayaks. They were seal hunting was the main um, work in the region. And uh, then they they would become so frightened of, of going out on the kayak that they would just stop work and become kind of unemployed. And there were lots of theories advanced as to what was happening there. Um, Somewhere that the that the panics were an indirect result of alcohol, tobacco, coffee, various things that the colonizers had imported into the colony. Um, then it was also understood as a form of agoraphobia, that being a, a common diagnosis then in the West. Later, people thought it might be connected to the sensory deprivation of being out on a boat in a wide, flat sea when a featureless landscape. But the Inuit themselves thought that kayak phobia was a kind of curse that had been placed on them by someone else in the community, a kind of revenge spell. And what's interesting about that, um, among other things, is that their folkloric traditional explanation rooted the cause of the phobia in the community. It was something about the interactions between people as opposed to something in an individual psychology. And it quite neatly dramatizes the way that Western ideas about psychology and about um, fear and crisis are, are very different from those of other cultures. When did people start talking about 
phobias or manias as being something that an individual in the West might have? Well, the the main origin story really is Benjamin Rush, who was one of the founding fathers of the United States and also a physician. And he wrote a couple of short essays in which he enumerated various phobias and manias. In a way, his essays are satirical, but they also are serious in identifying these obsessive behaviours or ideas as psychological conditions. Before that, phobia had been a sort of seen as a physical response to something, an aversion, and manias had been seen as social crazes. And so he started the, the idea that they could be individual psychological disorders. And then in the 19th century, many psychiatrists in Europe and the United States started to list the specific phobias of specific situations and objects and give them names derived from ancient Greek and to write up case studies of the people who suffered from from these things. And one of the most influential was um, the diagnosis of agoraphobia in Berlin in the 1870s. Particular psychiatrists observed that many men in the city seemed to have a kind of panic attack, as we would now describe it, when they were out in a very wide open space, like a city square or a, a wide avenue, and that they became frozen with, with terror. And some at the time attributed it to the this new disorder, as they thought of it, um, attributed it to the changes in the landscape of European cities, which used to be much more windy and wonky with little old narrow curving alleys and um, and lopsided buildings and were now being rebuilt as uh, you know with great boulevards and avenues and uh, tall blocks and there was a sense that the the human in this landscape was becoming kind of dwarfed and terrorized and that it was setting off certain psychological reactions in in people Interestingly, there was also the siege in Paris. German, the Germans um, besieged Paris in, I think, 1871. And when the siege lifted, many people were scared of, of going outside. So they'd become conditioned. And so people at the time observed that claustrophobia and agoraphobia, the spatial phobias, could be really quite closely related to historical events and conditions, not just architecture, but wars. And of course, we've had something similar recently with the pandemic and the lockdowns, uh, people being confined to their homes and then the outside world seeming suddenly scary. And it reminds us how these um, phobias are, are rooted in, in history and events that affect us all. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think... Agoraphobia is a, a very striking example, but it, there are a lot of fears that you write about and even, you know, the idea of a mania, orophobia, that seem to arise in lockstep with modernity, with modernization, with industrialization. I was fascinated to read that arithnomania, which is um, an obsession with numbers and counting, some speculated at the time that it was tied to our reverence for mechanical processes. I mean, what's the connection between these psychological disorders or diagnoses or afflictions and modernity itself? 
you know, it does seem as if a lot of these things have become, as it were, I suppose the more we communicate, the more kind of emotionally contagious some of these these conditions can be. Phobias and manias, there's plenty of evidence that they're quite, some of them are quite sort of securely rooted in our primitive brains. You know, they're sort of evolutionary adaptations that have survived, traces have survived. But they also need to be triggered by um, culture, society, individual experience. And um, it's, it's a fascinating sort of interplay between things that happen to a person in their life, a shock or a drama or a trauma, but also things that happen in the wider world, like a widespread fear of clowns suddenly taking hold. Um, and yes, erythromania and some of the other repetitive manias, which sometimes now manifest as obsessive compulsive disorders, there is speculation that they do mimic a sort of machine-like quality that perhaps is rooted in the rapid industrialization in the 19th century and the idea that as human beings we can internalize some of these values and even the movements of certain objects that, that are around us, whether it's trains or um, machines in a factory. Yeah, I mean, we have to talk about group manias now, which I think seem to sort of exemplify some of what we're talking about. Um, I knew about tulip mania, which was that distinct period of Dutch history when everybody had to have tulips. But there were all kinds of other obsessions that I was just riveted by. Um, laughing mania, where children would just burst into laughter. Demonomania, wild. Um, choreomania, where people would dance, you know. I don't know if you want to talk about all three, but I thought... These group manias where an entire community just loses it <laughs> were, were so fascinating and, I don't know, say a lot about us. Yeah. I mean, we could put Beatlemania in the same category, <laughs> in fact. And uh, a lot of these manias, these collective manias, do seem to affect communities of girls and young women. And they also seem to take place at moments of great social change or crisis. So the, the laughing mania you mention in East Africa in the 1960s um, broke out among girls in missionary schools. So they were being taught Christian values in these schools, but they came from much more traditional communities and the girls had been, they were boarding schools, they'd been separated from their families. And so the the outbreaks of hysterical laughing and crying can be thought of as a kind of manifestation of crisis, confusion, excitement at the clash of cultures, at the African and the Western cultures sort of banging up against each other in these girls' heads. And it was a period when many of the girls' parents and grandparents were being moved on from their tribal homes to cities, for various reasons, and so it was a time of social upheaval in, in that respect as well. Um, similarly, demonomania, which was uh, took place in an alpine village in France in the 1860s, was um, an outbreak of apparent demonic possession among the villagers most of whom were girls and women because the men had started to travel um, from away from the village to find work in cities. 
and the women had been left to tend the land and, and run the place. And again, it was like the, this very remote community was suddenly coming into contact with a much wider world. And also there'd been this sort of role reversal where the women had been put in charge and the men had vanished for much of the year. So it, that seems like a moment of group psychological crisis, um, a, re, a rewriting of the social roles and rules and norms, some unconscious thing surging to the surface. And of course, these um, manias are contagious, as it were, sort of emotionally contagious. And I, that's very intriguing to me, the way that people mimic and are inspired by each other, to not, not consciously, but um, that certain behaviours can emerge from you when you're in the presence of, of other people behaving in that way. And it can quite quickly spiral out of control. I is interested in thinking about these things, not just as kind of breakdowns, but as, as expressions of feeling, as forms of protest, as, as ways that young women and girls were making themselves seen and heard and making their crisis seen and heard. Yeah, thinking of laughing mania, especially the way you wrote about people were being driven away from their ancestral lands, away from their graves of their forebears and protection of the spirits. You're so powerless in that situation as like a young girl stuck in a school with missionaries, a bunch of people who look different from you probably and have a completely different religion. Like what else can you do but laugh? It's either that or, I don't know, homicidal rage, I feel like. Yes, you're right. I mean, the I suppose these girls, they were away from home. And while they were away from home, their homes were being dismantled. Their homes were vanishing. So their reference points were being erased at the same time as they were having to adapt to this alien culture. Um, they cried as well as laughed. I suppose it was called a laughing mania because that was the more surprising aspect of it. And the laughing kind of signals the energy that can be released in that situation as well as the grief. And maybe the girls felt both loss and liberation in that situation, um, a sort of accelerated adolescence where their entire childhood was being whipped away and, and replaced with something else. It makes sense. And, and the demonomania, too, at Morzine, the dying spasms of a medieval world. Mm. You know, how does it stop? How do you stop laughing at something so devastating? How do you stop, I don't know, clawing at the priests trying to tell you that, you no, 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 it's all going to be okay? Yeah. Well, in Morzine, with the demonomania, they, the authorities came in, the, the French authorities. They tried to deal with it by sending the worst affected of the women off to uh, hospitals and asylums. But when they came back, it just started all over again. Um, the priest tried to conduct exorcisms, but he, the priest himself said, I don't think this is anything to do with devils. This is something emotional, psychological. I think it, eventually it plays itself out. They did, in a rather enlightened way, start to, um, they introduced a library in the, in the village and concerts. They tried to provide, I suppose, other outlets for people's emotion, more orderly outlets and diversions. Because at the time, the only place to go was, was church in terms of group gatherings and cultural events in this village. And the church 
was the perfect setting for setting off this kind of feeling of demonic possession and rebellion. And it sort of took the form of people having fits and hurling themselves around and spitting in the face of the priests, running around and being disorderly and swearing. And (laughs) it was a sort of kind of fury, you know, Um, and it does feel right that it was a dying spasms of an old way of life that was being overcome not organically, but too fast, you know, when something accelerates like that, um, they, it was almost as if these women's bodies and emotions accelerated in concert with that and, um, and sort of broke, broke the banks, you know. Mm -hmm. It was a very effective protest movement if we're thinking about it as a subconscious one, because they got a ton of social services. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes, they did. Yeah. I think the cure too for demonomania, I think, hints at something that you allude to or or quote from other um, writers and psychologists in, in various entries for various phobias, but um, it came up in Social Mania um, where the there's a writer named Christopher Lane who says that there's a great cost to medicalizing our quirks, eccentricities, and ordinary feelings. The sad consequence, he says, is a vast, perhaps irrecoverable loss of emotional range and impoverishment of human feelings. I wonder if you could speak more on that, on the like differing opinions and maybe where you fall on, you know, diagnosing these things as something to be cured um, when perhaps there might be another solution. Yeah, Chris Lane is talking about the pathologization of various forms of shyness and introversion which took place really like in the late 70s early 80s when these conditions entered the diagnostic manuals as social phobias and he's saying to call shyness a phobia to say it can be treated with drugs at the extreme is to narrow our emotional range and to um, to take away the eccentricity and variety of, of human emotion. And he this suggests that the pharmaceutical industry put pressure on psychiatrists to come up with these labels as a means of having a new constituency to prescribe drugs to. Um, and I, I think there's a lot in that. To describe something as a phobic behaviour or a manic behaviour um, as a as a sort of psychological disorder is both generous and forgiving on the one hand because it's saying this is something the person can't help it's uh, it's not an act of will so if you set a fire and you're a pyromaniac you're not a criminal you're mentally ill so in some cases it can absolve people of responsibility and encourage us to treat them with compassion and understanding and even not send them to prison, but instead um, offer them psychological help. On the other hand, it's quite infantilizing and it narrows the range of, of, of normality. And so that anyone who doesn't conform to what we think of as, as kind of ideal, rational, sane behavior um, is sick rather than choosing to behave in different ways. And it, it sort of depoliticizes behaviors that are out of the ordinary and, um, and, and sometimes denigrates them. So it's very, very hard to know how much good and how much bad is done, um, to individuals by these diagnoses. I think that that's the case with most psychiatric diagnoses. 
And I suppose it's up to the individual whether to call what their behaviour or their emotional tendency is um, an illness, a disorder, or or not. Uh, easier said than done, as these things are often sort of diagnosed for us. But um, it, it certainly... It was part of the Great Victorian project to kind of label people and put them in boxes and um, and to have a name for everything and to uh, it's a sort of form of control, form of social control and medical control. So it certainly has its bad effects, its infantilizing effects, and women are much more often diagnosed as manic and phobic than men. Um, there are some who argue that this is because women are more phobic and that there might be an evolutionary rationale for this in that women are most phobic during their childbearing years, responsible as often as not for others as well as themselves, dependents. And so the, uh, the theory is that they, it, it makes sense for them to have a heightened sense of caution, to be wary, uh, to sense danger. But... There are also plenty of social and cultural explanations for why women might more often describe themselves as phobic because fear is more acceptable or even desirable in women um, and why men might call women phobic or manic because their behaviours are more readily seen as irrational. And, of course, even the fact that women might be sensible to be more afraid sometimes because certain social um, situations are more dangerous to them. So if women are more agoraphobic, maybe it's because public spaces are less friendly to women, or used to be certainly in the 19th century when this was first diagnosed. You know, I don't want to leave people with the impression that all the phobias and manias are just social disorders and not truly debilitating, because a lot of the examples you describe are far beyond an eccentricity. They really do, as you said in the beginning, affect your life so deeply. And I really enjoyed reading a lot of the longer case studies you write about of like someone who is scared of spiders and the process for how these people were cured. Because I think it's really hopeful, you know, to read about how much a fear of a cat could change someone's life and then that they would be able to overcome it. You know, it's like a light in the dark or like the, I think the best one, honestly, was the case study of a woman who was afraid of vomiting. And then she ended up, after her curing regimen, she ended up in a job where she's like regularly touching dead people's vomit. <laughs> I was just astonished. Yeah, I mean, that was so startling to to read. She she sort of, in the end, she actively sort of went near it, yeah. And it was really disabling, her phobia. It's called emetophobia, the fear of vomiting, and it's very under-researched, I think, and actually very widespread, well, very widespread, less rare than you'd think, and, um, and really can be debilitating. It, people with this phobia might be scared of being pregnant, of travelling, of being around children, of going to parties in case people are drunk, of eating all sorts of foods. This was in Holland, that case, um, in Amsterdam. She was cured by a process of eye movement desensitisation. It does seem remarkable how well it worked. And in fact, I, I mean, I, I think most people with phobias don't actually seek help because they just deal with it by avoiding the thing they're scared of. But actually, it's one of the most treatable anxiety disorders. 
There are all sorts of effective therapy, cognitive behavioural therapies, virtual reality therapies, talking therapies of all kinds, and they are as often as not effective. Uh, so yes, there are lots of sort of hopeful stories, um, astonishing stories of how people overcome the, the things that they're really scared of. I did like writing some longer case studies, both to remind us of how embedded these things can be and how they get in the way of normal life, but also how individual the causes are. Every time, you know, as you say, we've been talking a lot about culture and society and uh, and how that helps feed our fears and shape our fears. And as my books are um, largely a sort of history of these conditions, that plays a big part. But our individual histories also are absolutely crucial in determining whether we're scared of things and what we're scared of and how fixating that fear or, or in the case of mania's compulsion can be. And it's only by digging in a little bit to an individual life story that you can really get the feel for, for where it came from, what it might express, how important losing it might be, how revolutionary and liberating it might be to, to overcome a phobia. We have links in the show notes to Kate Summerscale's Book of Phobias and Manias, A History of Obsession, as well as our previous conversation about paranormal obsessions in Great Britain. And I will say that preparing for that interview, as well as the one I did with Sam Knight earlier this year about the Premonitions Bureau, was the background reading I never knew I needed for mid-century British fiction. I recently stumbled upon a wonderful used copy of the novel The Unforeseen by Dorothy McArdle from a series that Tramp Press put out of neglected Irish titles. And I think without knowing that post-war Britain, really post-war Europe, was obsessed with uh, its own psychic damage and with the, the boundaries between the paranormal and the normal, I, I wouldn't have gotten as much out of that book as I did. So who says the supernatural isn't useful? We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.